black woman, beautiful, powerful, resilient female of African descent with skin kissed by the sun. Conversation, a talk, especially an informal one between two or more people in which news and ideas are exchanged. We love being black women. Black women are ambitious. Black women are confident. Black women are diligent. We are tenacious. We walk out of our houses put together. We are many shades and personalities of fabulous. But we as black women don't talk about our dilemmas, current events, and what's going on every day that affects us. So we created this podcast as a way to laugh together, cry together, and have an open conversation about life as black women. Oh, that's deep. Black Women Conversations. Hey, Nicole. Hey, Janine. How's your week been? So the week has been, I'm trying to, let me reflect on the whole week because today, you know, it's been a conundrum because I've been in and out of the dark. I have a candle standing by just in case the power goes out again. I mean, all of a sudden, like the wind was blowing. It was like a hurricane in here. We were looking out, you know, like on the color purple when all of a sudden the wind started. That's what it felt like around here. And then all of a sudden the power went out and I didn't know why. And then all of a sudden the lightning and the rain and all the things started to to come. So, um, yeah, we light candles up and through here. And my little um, recording place is in the basement, is in a room in the basement. So if the power goes out, I mean, I don't know if I will be able to find my way back up, back upstairs. So I have a candle lit just in case. But the rest of the week, I'm trying to think. Harrison had... Um, baking camp this week so every day he came home and he wanted to bake something and i i can bake a little bit but that is not my gift so it's been a challenge so he's wanted to basically bake eggs every day right like i'm gonna chop like break all these eggs in a bowl and put them in the oven to bake eggs i'm like okay we can have quiche every night (laughs) that's what we've been doing every night and then of course you know work is work so there's been nothing really that exciting this week that I can think of besides baking camp that I've had to look forward to. But on a positive note, I did get some things approved at work in terms of systems. So if y'all listening for the first time, you know I'm in Atlanta now and I've started a whole new division for maternal fetal medicine. So it's been um, it's been a work in progress. So it has been a challenge, but I'm now seeing a timeline and the light at the end of the tunnel. So I can definitely say it's been um, more of a positive week, but next week will be an even better week, but we'll share that news on the next podcast episode. So Johnny, how's your week been? How are you just going to leave the people with a a cliffhanger like that? Like next week will be a better week, but you're not going to tell them why it will be a better week, but I'm just going to let her leave y'all hanging on this cliff for a week. So I'm not going to leave you hanging for a week. I'm going to leave you hanging for until the very last episode. We got a couple more episodes this season. So you make them wait the whole I'm time, a- Nicole? I am. I am. I'm going to wait because I got to make sure, sure, right? Like okay. I don't want to say something and all of a sudden I have to like renege on it. So I'm going to share this, the last episode of season four i mean season three look at me already putting season four out there the last episode of season three let let it marinate on y'all over the summer break so when we open season four and i'm asking y'all for some advice you will have thought about it 
Okay. That's fair. That's fair. So work has been super crazy and it's going to be super crazy at least for the next three weeks. Then I get a couple of, you know, a couple of weeks of some downtime or what, you know, downtime for me. And then it's back to busy. So y'all pray for me, pray that I get more than four hours of rest tonight. But on Thursday or Friday, I don't remember which day it was. I believe it was Friday. There was a fashion show for like courtside fashion with Kevin Durant's mom and Quinn Cook's mom. And it was super cute fashion show at UDC. It was, you know, cute. And then I get to hang out with my friend Tati, who I've known since high school. And then today we did brunch with your girl Moret. So there was brunch at MGM National Harbor and Moret performed there. So yeah, that has been my week. It's been kind of busy, but fun, fun, busy, not just crazy work busy. To me, your fun and work just merge so effortlessly that I just can't tell the difference. Y'all, Johnny's downtime is just not really downtime. And if y'all heard us talk about Moret Brown-Clark, you know, she sang at my wedding and she's actually worked with uh, with my husband before. So, hey, listeners, how y'all been doing this week? What have y'all done this week? Hopefully you've done more than just work like Johnny and I have been. Have you joined in the conversation? Nicole, the people have been giving us the conversation. They've been giving us the business. Y'all have been sending us some really crazy stories. Y'all, we see them. The way we put the episode together, we need the stories and the letters that you send us to match. So if you have a story and you want to send it, send it. But if you have a letter, send those too. Some of these stories, Nicole, that these people be sending us, I really wonder. But we love y'all. Oh, we do love y'all. And we love you so much and we want you to show us love back. So please make sure to share us with your friends, rate, comment, like, subscribe, all of that good jazz, and keep on sharing us. All right, so Janine, before we get into the timeline, because y'all, it's going to be good, we have a very special guest with us today, and that is Dr. Tina Opie. Dr. Tina Opie is an Associate Professor of Management at Babson College, a well-regarded thought leader in the field of organizational behavior and a professional speaker. Her research centers on leadership, culture, diversity, and gender. She is the founder of Opie Consulting Group, LLC, where she advises firms on strategies to create more inclusive and productive cultures. Her research has been published in multiple peer-reviewed academic journals and has been featured in such outlets as Bloomberg, NPR, O Magazine, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, and Harvard Business Review. Dr. Tina is a regular commentator on Harvard Business Review's Women at Work podcast and Greater Boston's NPR affiliate television station, WGBH. Dr. Opie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you all so much for having me, and I'm really enjoying this chit chat and chatter. I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here with you all. And I've enjoyed listening to your podcast before. So it's a real honor to be here. Yes, yes. And we've enjoyed following you on social media. And I know we'll get into all of the great things that you're doing after our timeline. So I cannot wait. So Janine, tell the people what's on our timeline this week. Okay, so we're going to go to something that really kind of affects all of us, really. I mean, look, we don't like to have bad hair days, but this one is a little bit different. So Akilah Davis, she's an ABC news anchor from WTVD in North Carolina, and she kind of shed light on something that 
women struggle with in general, but specifically black women. And it's like our hair, our hair in the workplace and what it's going to look like and how we're going to adjust it. You know, there's this term of like fry dot and lay to the side. And we would like to think that it really only affects us as black women, but just women in general, it's something that we have to deal with. Like what, how are we going to present ourselves so that we are showing up authentically as ourselves and in a professional manner? Despite the fact that the Crown Act was passed, we still struggle with this. Black women specifically, we struggle with the limitations of what our hair is going to look like and how we can show up for work. Now, if you're someone like me who works in a more creative environment, yeah, you can probably get your hair dyed pink underneath, right? But if you work in a more corporate environment that might not be as forgiving for some of those things, you kind of have to be more mindful of what your hair looks like. And this is kind of along the lines of this story that Akilah put together. And I actually really like the story. So I always really like these storytelling thought pieces that I see on the news because I feel like it really helps us connect to our news anchors. But I digress. So Akilah put together this story, right? And she self-admittedly has internalized the idea that straight hair is good hair, the more acceptable hair, the more presentable hair, the more professional hair, and her natural kinky coils was just not as kept or maintained and a little unprofessional because, you know, that's kind of just what we've all been taught. So it's not just her, but she's kind of pointing it out for us, right? So Specifically, she pointed out that in a work environment, she has to be cognizant of what her hair looks like because for her, she's on television. So I completely understand because I think that we've all had that moment where we're like, okay, I would like to do this to my hair, but, or my hair appointment is not until this day. What am I going to do in the interim to hold me over until I get to that point, right? I remember mid-pandemic that... If you all recall, I had very short hair. Part of my head was shaved and the pandemic hit and none of us could go to Barber Beauty Shop. And I had to make the choice of were we going to go back to the creamy crack or were we going to try to figure something out? And what did trying to figure something out look and feel like? Akila had the same kind of struggle, not specifically during the pandemic, or at least not that she shared, but she was having the struggle of how is she going to manage her hair? in a way in which she felt comfortable and also show up as her authentic self. So in 21, somewhere close, I think she said December 21, not short, not too long after I established my microlocks, she established, established hers as well. And even though she had microlocks, she continued to cover them up with a wig so that she could present as a straight haired news anchor. Now, I find that very interesting because as you go on through the story, it's her microlocks and her wig don't actually look that different. It's just you can see texture in her locks, whereas the wig was just, you know, very bone straight. So she said that she was struggling because, as I said, she wanted to show up as her authentic self, but she also wanted to have hair freedom and she wanted to be able to have that hair freedom without having to conform to the Eurocentric beauty standards. And look, 
I understand. But when you're on the camera, there are 5,000 things that you're worried about. And when you go into hair and makeup every day, you also want to make sure that you're not ruining your hair, that they know what they're doing. You know, there's just this plus, plus, plus specifically for us. So as Akila was sharing her story, she said that while she was going through the racial reckoning that the country was going through after the death of George Floyd, she realized that there was also this, this like silent movement that was happening behind the scenes for black women, where black women were really like ready to be liberated and able to show up as their authentic selves, the way that their hair grows out of their scalp and not have to do 15 things to make it acceptable. So even though Akila was covering her locks, she was kind of planning of how she was going to unveil this on television. The one good thing that she did have is there was a fellow news anchor, Janae Norman, who is on Good Morning America, who had done this before. And Janae Norman, she is an African-American news anchor who made her natural hair care journey and her journey to freedom on Good Morning America back in 2018. So she reached out to Janae Norman and Janae shared that it's not easy, right? It takes, you know, it takes a lot. It's rooted in fear because you're not sure how people are going to accept it. If they're going to accept it, what's going to happen? Is it going to change your ratings? I mean, it's, it sounds crazy, but those are things that they have to consider. And then she said, but it takes strength and it takes resilience. It takes all of the things to venture out to be naturally who you are. So I would also venture to say that it takes support and it takes this, this connection that they had. Maybe they might not have been so close, but this is something that it's a shared experience. And it's like, Hey, I don't know what this is going to be like. You've done this before. Maybe you can help me. So Janae obviously spoke with Akila and they went through what, what she had experienced and how her journey had been and how Akila was going to show up as her authentic self. So Akila picked or selected June 10th to share her story because she said that that was her liberation day. But then she said, it's not just about her. It's not just about her freedom and her freedom to, to wear her hair the way she wants to. But she said that she's hoping to inspire other women and young girls that may be struggling to embrace their roots the same way that Janae inspired her. I think that's awesome because a lot of times we maybe don't step out on that ledge because we're not sure how it's going to be received. And subsequently we kind of paint ourselves into a box because it's easier to do it that way, right? Like you're not, you're not really messing with status quo. I don't know. What do you think, Nicole? I love the story. Um, I, I struggle with it because I felt like she talked so much about her background, her upbringing, and how she felt like her mom and the way her mom responded to her hair having to be straight sort of traumatized her. And, you know, it just lets you know that there's like the things that you say to your children right now that you don't think that they internalize, they actually do. I mean, this is affecting somebody that is a whole grown adult with a whole career and she still goes back to well the reason this is that I feel this way is because my mom always talked about how my hair had to be straight she had to straighten it for it to be quote presentable 
Um, and so I think that, you know, a lot of that starts at home with how we perceive ourselves, right? Um, and so I don't want to ignore that point. But also the fact that her locks are gorgeous and shout out to whoever is doing her wig work. Okay. Because it's amazing too. The fact that they can lay that wig and that lace and make it look like it's seamless under all of those locks. Cause she has like a head full of locks. Says a lot about the skill level of whoever does her hair. But I know that that is like really not what we're talking about the skill level, but it's true. Like whoever did her wig did, you know, did an amazing job. But it is a shame that in today's society, with all of the things that we've gone through, with all of the things that we've achieved as a culture, that we still have to worry about, hey, are these locks, although they're neat, although they're well-tamed, she has them colored, she has them layered, is it okay to wear on the air? Um, And I think that people do that all the time. Subconsciously, we do do that. But if we think back, we think about, hey, why did we not get the sister locks? you know, before we went on vacation, why do we, why we not do that? I think about, you know, I have braids, you know, I never wear braids, but I have braids because I told myself I'm going to the Grand Cayman Islands. So I need to get, you know, some type of vacation where they could get wet. But I did, I thought about it. Like, do I get the ones that go all the way to my butt? Like, how are my patients going to think about that? How are my reviews going to be um, for patients? Because nowadays, Reviews mean metrics. Metrics mean bonus. Okay. And so if you don't have the reviews, you don't get the bonus. So I had to to pause and think, you know, how is that going to be perceived by my patients? Not because I felt like I couldn't because of my mom, but because of the things that you've heard people say in the workplace, right? Oh, you have braids. Can Can I touch your braids? Is there, is there hair added or is that is that all your hair? You know, people say things like that, not realizing that it makes, at least me as a black woman, I don't speak for all black women, cringe. Like you went from seeing my hair a little bit past my shoulders and now these braids are, you know, bra strap length below my bra strap and you really in your head asking me if hair has added? But things like that, you know, it sort of singles you out in the workplace. I think that that one of the things that we have to remember also is it really depends on the environment that you work in. Because when, for me, I'll use myself as an example because I can't speak for anybody else. But for me, there was no point when I worked in a predominantly white male environment where my supervisors were white men that I was going to lock my hair, right? There was, I think that I had a perm for the entire time that I worked in a predominantly white environment. And the reason why is because it was just easier for me to explain what was going on with my hair to them if they asked than saying, oh, what? wait, I'm locking it. And then you do get those questions that you were mentioning, Nicole, like, how do you wash it? The same way you wash your hair. Like, let's be, let's be real. But the one thing that I found is when I work for women, specifically black women, I have that freedom because somebody understands and there's not someone in a position of decision making that could potentially cause me to no longer be employed that will have that same bias towards my hair 
you know, when I had a white male boss, they might. And that's not, I'm not saying that it was an intentional bias, but it, it look, we all have bias, right? But like, I think that it's just like, hey, that doesn't make me feel as comfortable or not something that I'm as used to. And they kind of pass judgment based on what they've seen in the past. Whereas with black women, look, we, we know we've seen it all. And we do understand that the way that our hair looks does not affect how we can do our job. I'm going to pull Dr. Opie into this conversation because y'all, Dr. Opie has a whole book called Share Sisterhood <laughs> in the Workplace, right? So, um, and in this book delves into how we can um, form relationships and bonds to promote equity in the workplace. So I'm, you know, one, very curious about the book, but, um, but before we get to the book, I do want to get your input on like, what do you think about this story as to, you know, why it took her so long? And is it something that you can relate to yourself? I can totally relate to this. First of all, I have had every hairstyle under the sun. I have braids right now. In COVID, I don't know if people know one of the side effects of COVID is hair loss. So I had a big, huge afro, except for one little spot that went bald. So I cut it off myself because we couldn't really go to the barbershop or anything like that. And I'm, I'm wearing braids now to grow it back out. So in addition to the book, actually probably nine, 10 years ago, I wrote a paper for the Academy on norms of professionalism and Black women's hair in particular. And, and it was an experiment where I show, it was me and, and God rest her soul, Dr. Kathy Phillips, who's passed on. But so what we did is you've heard of the resume studies where they'll just change the names. What we did was change the pictures. So there were pictures of Black women and they either had an Afro, locks, or straight long straight hair. Then there were white women with long straight hair. And what we did was we asked people to rate their professionalism, how likely they would be to hire them. And then something interesting, we asked qualitative questions like, what advice would you give to this person if they were applying for a job? And what we found, no surprise, everyone rated the natural hairstyles more negatively, whether the, the raters were black or white. What was interesting is that there was an interaction with the race of, of the raters such that black people rated the natural hairstyles most negatively. And people are like, oh my God, that shows internalized racism. They didn't believe it. I said, actually, wait, hold, slow your roll because we don't know that. What Black people know is that natural hairstyles will be judged more negatively by power-dominant people. And so in, the, in, in, in one of the ways that we could sort of underscore that this might have been some kind of social monitoring or impression management, not necessarily internalized racism, is that in the qualitative statements, remember, we just asked, what advice would you give to this job applicant? We didn't say about their hair or anything. White people almost never mentioned the hair. Black people were like, girl, you might want to change that hairstyle, especially depending upon how conservative the industry is that you're applying to. So that was fascinating to me because what that suggests is Black people are very aware of a system that is judging us. We might think our hair is fly. We might love it. It might be convenient. It's worth, it helps our hair grow. But we know that when we go into the workplace, we're going to confront people who are, I mean, I'm sorry, it's 2023. And if you need, because I still have people asking me if they can touch my, you're ignorant. I have said, I was at a talk in Dallas. I said, right now, I'm going to say to this, if you tell me that you don't know that much about Black people, or you don't understand, then you don't want to know. Because we have so many television stations, so many books, so many. Who are you following on social media? Diversify that. Who are you reading? 
do you have black people come to your house or is it a, you know, a get out situation? I mean, we really and truly need to challenge ourselves. And that's where I, I would bring in shared sisters. So the story about Akila, the, the news anchor, I can understand why she would take so long to reveal her hair. Now I went natural in 1998 and this is when I was, it was, I was going into my, I think it was, I graduated from Darden at the University of Virginia, very Southern MBA program in 1999. Now, if you want to talk about a bastion of conservatives, I mean, I love Darden, but the South, the South, I'm at a business school in the South where those men march with tiki torches, you know, okay, this is in Charlottesville. That's where I went to school and I cut my relaxer off. I think it was over Christmas break, 1998. And then I go to school and, you know, people are trying to rub my hair. So I have to have a whole conversation with them about how I'm not a lawn jockey. I'm not a museum piece. I'm not a zoo animal. I'm not to be objectified. And actually, this is a funny thing. So when people try to do that to you, when people touch you unwillingly, I actually used to rub underneath their chin. And they would be like, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's shocking, isn't it? That's your personal space, right? This is my, my this is, there's a bubble. Envision a bubble around me. Um, and I'm going to need you to respect that. But anyway, so I had to, I was about to go on the job market. But I, my husband, he was my boyfriend then. We weren't even engaged. He used to give me scalp massages. And whenever I needed a relaxer, he would say, I love the way your roots feel, sweetheart. They feel alive. They feel, you You are so beautiful. So I really want to, now my mother, God bless her, and she will, she will admit this. She's from a different generation, right? When I said I was going to cut my hair off, she said, do you know how nappy your hair is? Why would you? Why would you want to do that? You got this long, thick, blunt bob cut. That's gorgeous. Why would you want to cut your hair? Now, every woman in my family is natural. My mother, my sisters. Because I think eventually we want to come back to ourselves. My daughter has never had a relaxer. She's going to Howard in the fall. She has never had a relaxer. Now, she's still gone through some identity things, but I think it's important for us to ask ourselves a couple of questions. And I, I really want, you know, I don't know if, how many white people are going to hear this, but I need the, the black people who are listening, whoever is, you guys have a broad audience, whoever is listening, I need y'all to go to the workplace and talk to white people. When they tell us to change our hair, I often say, are you asking us for grooming or to alter our, our identities? Identity alteration versus grooming, that is a critical thing because if what I, I was, I went to work one day and I had a twist out. Beautiful. My hair, I mean, I have, I have thick, kinky, coily hair. That is gorgeous. I mean, I love my hair. And I had done it in a twist out. And I was in one of my colleagues' offices, a white woman, and we were talking about my career. And she goes, wait a minute. You wouldn't wear your hair like that if you were still in consulting, would you? Now, mind you, she has shower wet hair when she's asking me this question. In her office, has not grown. And I said, how long did it take you to do your hair? I already know the answer. She didn't. And she goes, well, I didn't do my hair. I just jumped out the shower. I said, do you know how long it took me to get my hairstyle? Okay, there's pre-wash day. There's wash day. There's twisting. Then there's letting the things dry. And if you're trying to be healthy and not using any heat for my hair, that can take two days. And then I leave them in there a little bit longer. I have to make sure I got oil on. And I'm telling her all this. Oil on my fingers so that when I, detect, when I un, undo the twist, it's not frizzy on the ends. 
So isn't it interesting? I spent all that time grooming myself, but you still don't feel like it's professional enough for me to be here at Babson College. But you didn't do anything to your hair. So are you asking me about grooming or identity alteration? My hair grows towards the sun. Yours grows towards the earth. This is how my hair naturally is. And I'm proud of it. I've written books, I mean, articles about this. I have talked, I was on WGBH talking about the military's ban on this. Don't get me started. I am very proud of Akilah for what she's done. I think that is an individual behavior, that an, an individual stand that she took. What we need is more white women and white men and people from historically power dominant groups to educate themselves and advocate for that. When they tell you to bring your whole authentic self to work, it's not necessarily safe to do that. We're, we're, building, we're building the jet and trying to fly it at the same time. And so there's so many things that we need to work on, but I, I'm proud of Akilah. I, I am praying for her because I have no idea how those people are going to respond, but I hope that it doesn't shame her into putting that wig back on. Because the bottom line is there is no wig that we can put up that's going to cover our blackness that's going to make some people not be anti-black. So I, I'll pause there. Okay, so what I what I will say is, um, one, thank you for sharing those comments because you're absolutely right about all of it. Um, two, thank you for having the boss, for asking that lady, whoever she was, how long did it take you to do your hair? You know, because I don't know how many people I have worked with that are Caucasian women that think that that is acceptable to let their hair air dry half a day and just come to work looking like a wet dog. I'm sorry. That is a thing. Um, and I've also never seen someone touch a Caucasian woman's hair ever. I've never seen it. It's like, we all know that it's off. I'm not even thinking about touching their hair, but nobody has, no, no man has said, Oh, let me touch nobody. But for some reason they want to touch ours, but I'm glad that you uh, pointed that specific point out of your hair grows to the ground, ours grows to the sun. This took me X, Y, and Z amount of time. And how long did it take you? No time. So you need to work on your hygiene, basically. And I don't need to work on my hygiene. And for you to try to change my identity is discriminatory. So if she didn't catch that, uh, she must have been under somebody's bed that morning. Maybe she left herself in the bed because you definitely professionally read her. Okay. And I am here for it. I love it. But I do want to talk about the book specifically, because I know that this book will give us some good advice about how we do handle things like this in the workplace. So first of all, you seem to be someone that has been liberated from your hair movement since 1998. So what made you decide to write this book now? I decided to write this book now. Actually, so share, the idea for Shared Sisterhood is probably 13, 14, 15 years old, where I had gone, you know, I'm married to a historian. We'll be married for 23 years next month. And he's a historian. So there's books. I mean, you can see in my there's books in my office all around the house. And I've worked, I've been a banker, then a consultant, now a, prof a tenure professor, and also an entrepreneur. And in each of those domains, when I've looked around, I'm like, if feminism is real, why haven't Black and white women helped each other? Specifically, why haven't white women helped Black women? Because they're often in the boardroom having the conversations, negotiating, 
et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't seem as though it benefits us in the equally. So why is that? So I started reading all these books and seeing, looking into the history of the workplace and just how in the United States, Black women and white women, I believe, have been the largest proportion of women working in the workplace concurrently, like at the same time. But we don't, we don't seem to intermingle, intermix, help each other. So I tried to write this paper and it was terrible. It was because it was it was history and it was management. And it was a little bit of organizational behavior, but there was no theoretical underpinning. And so I shelved the paper. And then I met this white woman. Her name is Dr. Beth Livingston. She introduced herself to me and I didn't trust her at first. And we talk about our relationship in the book, but she is, she's now a good friend and a sister. And what I mean by that is she's someone who has my back, who has taken risks on my behalf. Money is involved in our partnership. We can trust each other with that. And so once I met Beth, I thought about, I said one day um, I emailed her. I said, hey, I have this paper that's sort of on gender and feminism, but it's, it's, you know, it's the intersectionality of gender and race. Would you be interested in co-writing it with me? And she said, for sure. So we did some podcast episodes and we were talking and then George Floyd got murdered and many other people got murdered. And I was numb and I was frustrated and I was furious and I didn't want to see any white people. And I told Beth that. I said, I need to just go in. I need to just go in. I'm re and I started writing and reflecting and brainstorming. And then she and I ended up writing the book over the pandemic, virtually. And that's why it came out now, because that's when we finished writing it because I had some healing to do. And so, you know, we, I, we've used the term shared sisterhood. That's what we call our radically optimistic philosophy on how to dismantle systemic inequities. And we can talk, there's three key steps. There's dig, bridge, and collective action. And dig is about surfacing your own assumptions and biases, interrogating them. So if I was to use that hair story with my white woman colleague, dig for her might look like, why did I think it was appropriate to ask Tina if she would wear her hair like that in consulting? What's different about Tina's hair and my hair? What's different about us? When did I start believing that her kind of hair is less professional than mine? Where does that belief come from? Do my parents think that? Did I go to school with people like Tina? So really asking yourself, a series of questions to try to understand sort of the root you want to dig. And the reason that that step is designed to be first, because I, I, you know, like I said, I came up with, with shared sisterhood first and then developed it with Beth. But when I would talk to white women at work, I often felt like they hadn't done any dig. Hence questions like, may I touch your hair? If you've done dig, you know that that's inappropriate. And, and furthermore, you would realize, given the historical objectification of Black people, I don't need to objectify Black people. And even if I am curious about what her hair feels like, I need to have a relationship with her, a close, close, close relationship with her before I even begin to ask that question. So that's dig. Dig has to happen first. Then you go to bridge, which is about connecting with people who are different than you and developing authentic relationships. And there's four, there's authentic meaning empathy, trust, risk-taking, and vulnerability. Each of those, 
things are necessary. And so if I was, if she was, if we were trying to, to try to bridge, so I didn't trust her at all when she asked me that question. She clearly was not empathizing with me. Now I took a risk asking her how long it took her to do her hair, but it wasn't a risk necessarily to try to connect with her. It was because I was trying to get her to hold up a mirror and get her to see that she needed to ask herself some questions. Uh, then you, so once you dig and you bridge, then you have collective action, which is where I think too many people jump directly to collective action. They say, we're going to make this company more diverse or more inclusive or more equitable. But the leaders have never examined what they think about race. They've never examined their own identity. They don't even know what whiteness is. They don't know how whiteness is different from being white. So anyway, that's that's shared sisterhood in a nutshell. And that's why I wrote it when I did. I love that. So dig, bridge, and act. When you were saying that what dig looks like for people, I think that that's typically the step that we skip where we just kind of try to bridge, like to make a connection. And it's it's weird because you you haven't actually done the work. And I feel like the dig portion is where you do the work to try to kind of peel back the layers of why you do things. We all, like I said, we all have bias. We just have to figure out why it exists and what we can do to try to prevent ourselves from acting on said bias. I like that. I'll add this, you know, listening to you, it would be great if everybody thought they should be digging because black people automatically dig. You know, when we go for a job interview, we are trying to research that company. We're Googling who we're going to be interviewed with. We look at on their social media and stalking them. We're trying to figure out what schools they went to, what they mama them did for a living. We want to know about them, right? Sort of what drives them so that we can find ways in interviews to connect. But Caucasian people, they don't do that. Like it's not a natural part of them. So it's like, how do you get them to be able to dig or want to dig? I don't know if that's a thing that you can do, like make somebody want to dig, just like innately want to dig. Thank you. So that's a great question, Nicole. And I'm I'm a, I'm a correct one thing. I think it's not that white people don't dig. I think it's that people from historically power dominant groups tend to dig less than people from historically marginalized groups because your very survival, if you're from a historically marginalized group, your very survival depends upon how well you understand the power dominant group. My mother picked cotton. They weren't supposed to walk on the sidewalk. If they saw a white man coming towards them with a particular facial expression, they knew that they needed to move more quickly or more slowly. You have to be sensitive. He didn't know anything about them. He didn't have to because the system was constructed in such a way that he had power or access to and control over resources much more so than they did. So I think, and so, so there's a couple of things. First, I want to talk about, because, because, Black people do have to dig. And I would actually say what you were describing, Nicole, feels more like doing research. Dig is about yourself. It's about digging. So I'm going to answer your first question about how do you how do you know how to talk to some people because they may not want to dig. There's something called the 20-60-20 rule. And the idea is that you can divide most populations into three groups. The top 20% are your friends. 
those people who no matter what you say, they're going to they're gonna agree with you. That's like my mom. She's going to hide me if I commit a crime. Like that's the top 20%. The bottom 20% are your foes. No matter what you say, they are not going to be moved. The movable middle, that 60%, that's where we encourage people to direct their attention, to focus. Too many of us focus on the bottom 20%. We're trying to argue, trying to get them to see that this is a valid conversation. I tell Beth, look, you need to talk to your uncle. I'm, I'm not going to deal with him because he does not seem to want to even see my full humanity. And I'm not going to waste my, I'm not going to spit into a fan. I'm not going to cast pearls before swine. I am not going to have this conversation that is exhausting when there's very little likelihood that he's going to get it. It doesn't mean that he's not worthy. Worthy. I'm a Christian person. I believe every person is worthy. However, this is not the best use of my time because I'm worthy. I'm worthy of being respected and I have dignity and I have a right to walk in that. So that's, that's something that I think is really critical. The 20-60-20 rule has saved me a lot of agita. I already have high blood pressure, which I'm working on. I'm definitely not trying to be driven closer to the grave because of somebody who doesn't even see me. Talking about the need for Black people to dig, I had to dig when I met my co-author, Beth, because when she first came up to me, she was very enthusiastic about meeting me. I had just given up talk. She came up to me and I was like, who are you? I don't know you. I, I always joke. I was like security because she was in my personal space. And I didn't want to have necessarily a close relationship with her, but she persisted. I mean, she she kept she, in a in a nice way, not in a, a stalkerish way, but in a, a good way. I had to ask myself, what is it about Beth? What has she done? Has she done anything to deem herself not trustworthy or untrustworthy? The answer was no. So then I had to say, Tina, why are you keeping this woman like this? And I realized it's because Beth was white, and I was processing her not as an individual but as a proxy for all black, all white women. And I don't really particularly trust white women as a group because of historical damage. They often don't get, they enslave people too. They beat people too. They torture people and robbed people as, and raped people too. And so I, that often gets excused, but, and then I've been stabbed in the back by white women at work. So when she approached me, my initial thought was, what do you want from me? What do you, are you going to do me harm? Can I trust you? I had to ask myself those questions, though. And so little by little, I didn't, I didn't go to where I fully trust her now. I gave her a little test, and she probably knew that what was going on. But I wasn't going to be boo-boo the fool and trust her with money from jump. I needed to see that she was worthy of that trust. We started connecting on things we were similar in, and then we started connecting on things that we were dissimilar or having conversations and we've laid so many layers of trust and respect and empathy that we have a very sturdy bridge between us. And we don't always agree, but it's it's like we don't have cracks in our foundation, if that makes sense. And so it's a rare situation where I would trust her with my children. I would trust her with, so seriously, I would trust and she would trust me with her children. But that's rare. But that's great that you guys have established this bond. Um, I do want to move us into these letters because I think a lot of this information you've talked about, we can use to answer some of these letters uh, for my listeners. All right. So the first letter reads, Nicole and Janine, 
I work in higher ed administration at a pretty prestigious university. On this level of leadership, there aren't that many women. Well, on one particular board, I'm the only black woman at the table. And I feel like I have to keep proving myself over and over again. And to make matters worse, the other two women are Caucasian and I feel completely ignored by them. I can tell they have been somewhat strategizing, quote unquote, together because when they bring ideas to meetings, it's as if they play off of one another. They're nice to me and all, but I feel like as women, we should kind of stick together. One day I approached both of them as they were chatting after a long meeting and asked if they wanted to grab a drink. One said that she had to get home to her kids, which I completely understood. The other said she'd love for us all to get together soon whenever the other had time away from her kids. So I texted a friend of mine who's a business professor and we grabbed drinks. Do you know I ended up seeing this woman at the bar the same night with two of our other male colleagues who were at this meeting? Why couldn't she just say she already had plans or better yet invite me along? I feel as if I am out in the cold and there's no room at the end. Ladies, how would you navigate this situation? Any advice for gaining more allies in the workplace? Kristen. I think those two people might be in the bottom 20%. They might be foes. So I would not be wasting a lot of breath on trying to convert them into allies. The, the way, so I do something called managing by walking around, which is where I go to every division. I go to every part of the organization. People know me in the kitchen staff, the janitorial staff, the president's office, the library, the students, the alumni. I learn a lot of information because everybody across the campus knows me. I would encourage Kristen to do that. So don't just have a reputation in the specific work area where you work. Develop relationships, informal relationships with people throughout the organization. As you're developing those relationships, you're going to begin to get a sense of who are the influential people? What are they like? What are they interested in? How can you authentically connect with them in a way, things that you have that are similar, that that have overlap? And then I would, I mean, I don't want to get into the whole influence without authority model, but there is a model where you figure out what is it that, that motivates this person? Is it recognition or money or whatever? Once you've done that, I think I have learned how to be explicit with my asks. Once I develop a relationship with someone, I say, listen, I'm developing my business or I need to learn marketing better, or I've noticed that you have a really good uh, handle on that. I would love to shadow you or to do this. And by the way, I saw that you might need X. Well, I'm really good at that. So maybe we could swap or exchange. When you're talking with someone who you want to sponsor you, because that's what it also sounds like Kristen needs. A sponsor is different than a mentor. And there's research which shows that Black women are over-mentored and under-sponsored. And I don't know if Kristen is Black, but I mean, it sounded like she was from the letter. I would be seeking a sponsor. So her company may have a formal sponsor or not. A sponsor is somebody who brings your name into rooms where you're not. They advocate for you. They say, I think Kristen should get promoted. You need to find some formal and informal sponsors. And I think also, are there white men in the organization that you can allow with? For some reason, white men tend to love me. 
I think it's because I'm not a direct threat to them potentially when they when they see me. Identify some of those white men. The next time they go to the bar, you might be there with those white men and they might be butt out. So I'm going to give some less eloquent advice. Here's the thing. I have this this idea of you don't you're not going to work to make friends. If it happens when you're there, then that's great. But if it doesn't, I don't think it's something that you should seek out. And specifically, you know, to Dr. Obi's point, clearly this lady does not want to be friends with you. Otherwise, she would have just been honest and said, I already have plans. There's something else that I'm already doing or just flat out. I don't want to go because that's also a very fair answer. I don't want to go. But the fact that she was kind of like tiptoeing around it, maybe we can go out when all of us are available and then you see her out. It's it's real strange. Like that's giving sneaky, not friendly vibes. So I wouldn't continue to seek out a relationship with this this lady. Also, to another one of her points, it there's there's a very unique like nuanced situation between black women and white men in the workplace, specifically in this day and age, right? There's just a space where there's not really much that they're going to do to go out of their way in this manner because they don't want to be perceived as prejudiced or racist or they're more concerned. And I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, there, there are some of us to, to Dr. Opie's point that are, as I call them, white men whisperers. But also, white men typically in this day and age are very cognizant of how they come across or how what their how their actions are perceived because they are, I don't want to say tiptoeing, but they want to make sure that they're not the next one on the Me Too movement or they're not the next one that's being considered a racist. They want to maintain their reputation. And the way that they do that is, yeah, maybe they're not doing the work. Maybe they're not digging, but they are second guessing what they say and how they act before they do that. And look, everything can't be perfect. So we take, we take that as it comes. So girl, this is what I'm going to say. It's not likely that you're going to be friends with this young lady. And it's probably also not likely that you're going to be friends with her friend. But I will tell you from 20 plus years of career experience that those kind of people are the kind of people that are often moved out of the way without you doing a single thing. They either move themselves out of the way or God just moves them out of your way. I wouldn't be as concerned with that as I would be as to focus on my career and making sure that your reputation stays intact. Look, as I said, it's great to have friends at work, but if you don't, you don't really need them. Just, you know, keep your nose clean as they, as they tell us, right? Like just make sure that you're doing what you know to do to make sure that in those rooms where you might not be, that your reputation isn't preceding you in a negative manner. I think it'll work out. So um, I agree. Um, I'm surprised Dr. Opie said that, you know, she wouldn't try to bridge that relationship, right? Like for some reason I thought she was going with bridging, you know, and you know, hmm, surprised, but but I agree. I would definitely go, one, if I saw a colleague out that told me, oh, maybe we can get together when, you know, when we all have time. And I saw her out that night. I would probably go over and say hello. I would. I would make sure she knew that I saw her. I wouldn't be petty. I would say, oh, 
hey, you know, that that was super long meeting. Me and my friend, you know, we grabbed the drink. Maybe we could do this sometime later. And I would move on. But I would be very intentional of showing my face so that she knew. And I would watch her mouth drop open as I spoke to her and, and said, hey, yes, I, I'm the direct approach. It's always the best approach. But I am not, I would not say, you know, what you, I wouldn't be controversial, but I would go over and speak. I definitely agree with the uh, making your allies the, the Caucasian men. They like us. I don't know why, but they like us. And once you start getting them to actually know your name, they will, you know, as soon as diversity, equity, and inclusion comes up, your name will be dropped. So I definitely do agree with creating allies, uh, other allies than those women in the boardroom. And then to Dr. Opie's point, find out who the movers and shakers are and befriend those. And I do like the tips that you gave in terms of being direct and saying, hey, will you sponsor me? Will you advocate for me? Can I shadow you in doing X, Y, and Z? Because we got to know what exactly we want. Well, people, especially being over-mentored, like what does that even mean nowadays? Like people say, can you be my mentor? Yes, but what exactly do you want from me? You know, like what is your end goal in the mentorship game? We have to know exactly what we want. Otherwise, it's wasting my time, it's wasting your time. We have to say, can you mentor me? I, my goal is X, right? Um, and so I do think that Black women are over-mentored, but I think some of that is because we have to know what exactly we want. You know, we have to know we're mentoring for what? And then are we eventually trying to make these mentors become sponsors? Because they may not be able to get us to the point we want to get. So we may need to seek out other sponsors and maybe those mentors can help us find those sponsors that can advocate for us and speak our name in those rooms. But I do think we need to focus and figure out what exactly we want from the people that we ask to be our, you know, group of advisors, okay? We need to know what the purpose each person serves before we just wasted a whole bunch of time. The the things that we're talking about, I won't say the name of the class. I actually am running a class on this, right? It's called it's a it's called Triple A Leadership. It's on awareness, agency, and abundance. And it's the whole point that I created the class because as a black woman, I thought, okay, I'm smart. I'm a hard worker and I'm going to get ahead. That is just, that's not the truth. Hard work, if, if hard work was the bullet, Black people would own everything. Black and brown people, but Black people in particular, the enslavement, I mean, we would own everything. We work hard. There were other things that we had. I had to figure out, like the managing by walking around, understanding influence without authority. I really encourage your listeners to be specific and to seek out resources that can help equip them with those strategies and tools because there there are strategies that have been shown to work. Don't just go out there willy-nilly trying to do stuff. Read, listen to podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. But there are, I, you know, I think it's important. There is a method to the madness. I agree. We're going to go on to the next letter. It says, hey, ladies, Sheena here. Just a quick question, wanted to get you all's take. I work in a predominantly white male environment. My coworkers are amazing. However, I feel like I'm often misunderstood. 
I feel like it's because they don't have much experience working with black women. It's it's real. Just typical kind of kinds of things. When I'm quiet, I have an attitude or something must be wrong. When I speak, I'm angry or upset. I've started to call it out and it I'm seeing a little bit of progress. Well, that was at least until recently when we hired another black woman. Now I'm starting to see them doing the same old stuff with her. The new girl, lady I should say, hasn't mentioned it, at least not to me. Should I bring it up to her or should I just mind my business and keep it moving? What would you all do? Love you, Sheena. So when people make assumptions like that about you, I think it's really important I don't know how she's calling it out, how Sheena's calling it out. But one of the things that I love to do is say, what makes you say that? And then I smile. What makes you say that? And I don't say anything because I want the onus to be on them. To And this is another way of holding up a mirror and getting the person to think through what they have just assumed or done. And so I, I really like that question. The other thing, I always bring it up to Black women. When Black women join the team or the division that I'm in, we always have a Black woman lunch, a conversation. I take her to the side and I say, listen, this is just my experience or our experience. We'll all go together. But I think you should understand that sometimes because these these team members may not have had a lot of exposure to Black women, they may make assumptions. And I just want to draw your attention. Don't say anything. Don't take, don't even take me seriously. Like, like maybe ignore what I'm saying. But the next time we go to a meeting, I want you to think about who gets called on, what assumptions or attributions are made about you versus other people. Just take notes. And then I want us to follow back up and I want you to tell me what you saw. And the reason why I'm asking you to do this is because I think we can help each other. I think we can be in solidarity. These are some, I mean, this now, I don't reveal all my cards because you have to find out if you can trust the other Black woman because all skin folk ain't kin folk. And, and you, you have to make sure that she's not going to go to the boss and say, Tina said that you guys are racist about Black women because sometimes people will do that because of a scarcity mindset. They lack an abundance mindset. And so they think by pulling you down, they're increasing the likelihood that they'll get promoted or liked. And, and that is true. That is that has happened. It will continue to happen. So you have to do incremental tests of trust tests. But in a nutshell, that's how I would approach this. And then I would start tag teaming. I did. If you can bring your resources together, so maybe I have a sponsor and she has an ally or a sponsor. Can we start to use that to benefit all of us? And so what I'm suggesting is also taking a collectivistic uh, mindset, if you can. So um, I definitely agree with taking that colleague, that Black woman to the side and hipping them to the game, right? But for me, I am going to say, hey, girl, let's go grab you know, lunch, brunch, happy hour, whatever. And that conversation that we have is one, a way for me to fill her out, to see how how black is she, right? I hate to say that, but like, is she is she down or is she somebody that 
thinks that denying her blackness or being less black is going to get her ahead, right? Because you can find that out real quick, sit down and uh, share a meal with somebody. You find out real quick what you can talk about and what you cannot talk about, how you can code switch or how you should not be code switching with them, okay? You will find that out real quick. And if you are into the conversation, code switch, talking about hair, then you know, hey, listen, let me, before we leave here, let me tell you about everybody. Let me give you the rundown in the background about the players in the field, okay? And I will give her the rundown and I will tell her to keep her eyes and ears open. I would not blatantly say somebody is racist because to your point, Dr. Opie, I don't know her yet. Like I, she's proven that she's down, but I still don't really know her. So I don't want to use the race card real quick, but I will let her know this is the, this is, these are the players. This is how they will respond. But the other thing that I would do, if you're seeing and witnessing, depending on what's going on, if you're seeing and witnessing somebody else going through something that you've overcome before, because I've been in that situation, there's something to be said about you saying something. And I'm, and I'm not really sure what kinds of abuse you felt like you went through or exactly what was said. But sometimes you may have to say something. And depending on what, what the situation is, you may have to take that Caucasian person to the side. So as a point, I trained in Mississippi, right? I did residency and fellowship in Mississippi, okay? So I was the first black person not from Mississippi to train in this OBGYN residency program, right? So as this first black little person and the third black person period to go through the program that started in the 1970s. Okay. I literally being the Louisiana girl that I am, you know, to do what? Shut up, get there early, work hard, grind, right? My first year, people were telling my other colleagues in my class not to come and help me in OB triage. So OB Triage is a place where people come in that are pregnant for urgent concerns. And there's usually one person that's running the triage and then everybody else comes down to help as they have time to help you, right? But my first month of OB triage, I was specifically, classmates specifically were told not to come help me. And I did not realize that until my second month when a colleague came to me and said, hey, I feel really bad, but let me tell you, the reason that we haven't been helping you as much is because we were told not to come and help you. Shocker, right? And then I was being accused of, well, you can't possibly be seeing patients that quickly. You must be lying about documenting things. You must be lying. You can't be this efficient. But when nobody's there to help you, as Black women, you know how to figure out a system, right? You do become efficient. You make, you know, I have the board lined up, check to-do list on each patient so you're not missing things, Right? You get the nurses on your side as allies. And so as Dr. Obi said, you figure out other allies for you, right? Because once you get a nurse as a doctor, once you get a nurse as your ally, you're sweet, right? That nurse is going to draw your labs quicker than anybody else's lab. They're going to tell you when they come in. They're going to read them out loud for you. They're going to say, hey, it's been two hours since this person got here. You said you're going to recheck her cervix in two hours to see if her cervix changed. Let's go do that real quick. Hey, let's flip to the next room. They're going to help you become efficient. And that's what I had in the nurses, even the Caucasian nurses at, um, at the U, 
right? So I did become very efficient. But when my friend came in the year after that, who I knew, I went to med school with her. She eventually ended up being in my wedding. I was in her wedding, but she came and I saw her being mistreated. And it wasn't harsher than what I was, how I've been treated. But for me, it's like, this is me. I knew how to withstand that. But to sit there and watch somebody else be abused, you know, she was at the board and they were like, are you lying about X, Y, and Z? And I had to say, well, what makes, you, what makes you think she's lying? Aloud, I had to say that. And then afterwards, you know, then it got quiet. Oh, Nicole, the person that didn't really say anything the first year, now she's vocal, right? And I had to, you know, stay afterwards. And that's when the chief said, well, you know, I know you thought I was being harsh with her, but that's no harsher than what you used to get it way worse than that. We used to question you way worse. And I said, yeah, but it wasn't right then. And it's not right now. And you guys don't understand that what you did was mistreat me. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to stand around and let you mistreat her. And until I actually said it, I didn't think I would ever address the elephant in the room, but saying it really did change how I was treated. And it definitely changed how she was treated. So I'm not telling you to blatantly call somebody out in the middle of a meeting. Okay. I'm not asking you to do that, but there is something, if you do have a now relationship with them, say, Hey, listen, y'all used to treat me like that. That wasn't cool. You know, maybe take them to the side and have that conversation behind closed doors, depending on what the situation is. Because when you when you call people out, depending on how you call them out, in a group of people, they become defensive. So you don't want them to do that. But taking them to the side and saying, hey, listen, that's not cool. Y'all used to do me like that. And now look, you love me. So Dr. Opie, tell our listeners how they can find you on social media. Thank you so much. I am at Dr. Tina Opie across all social media, at D-R-T-I-N-A-O-P-I-E on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, maybe even TikTok. So (laughs) I'm trying that. Yes, I'm loving talking with y'all. Please tell our listeners how they can find the book, purchase the book, support the book. You can find the book. So I have mixed emotions about this. The book is in all of your sellers, you know, Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble. But if you can, please buy the book from a local bookstore. And uh, I'm blanking on the name of it. I just had a client in D.C. What's the big black bookstore next to Howard? Um, Mahogany Books, I think. Yes. If Just please support local bookstores. If they're black bookstores, that's even better because part of Shared Sisterhood is economics and finances. Um, One of the best ways to, to eliminate inequities I'm sorry, money matters. We live in a capitalist society, so we can try to act like it's all about hugging, but it's not. I agree. And maybe we'll post some um, Black-owned bookstores throughout the, the country where you can find where you can find the book. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Obi. We really appreciate having you. Seriously, this has been fun. It felt like talking to girlfriends. Just, I really appreciate it. I would love to talk to y'all again. Let me know. My husband and I are about to be empty nesters and we're practicing empty nesting. That's all I will say. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Absolutely love it. Thank you all so much. All right, Janine. So what did you learn new this week? 
So I learned that according to LinkedIn, you know how LinkedIn does those like wrap up surveys. According to LinkedIn in 2023, the beginning of 2023, Q1 of 2023, 25% of senior leadership roles were held by women. So hopefully it allows us to have a more welcoming a more sisterhood-friendly environment in the workplace. I feel like the more um, diversity, and not just specifically for women, but the more diversity that we have in senior leadership roles, the more that the workplace looks like what the world is really like. Hmm. What did you learn new this week, Nicole? I do like that, Janine, but at 25%, woo, we got a long way to go. Long way. So what I learned was a little, I guess a little funnier. So there's a board game, y'all, called Disparity Trap. And y'all, it's actually real. I didn't think it was real, but it is actually real. And it's a board game that's supposed to spark healthy conversations about race and privilege. I don't know how healthy those conversations, I guess the conversations would be healthy based on who you're having them with, but that's interesting. Maybe I have to get it to see what that's like. I mean, maybe it'll be a good, was it 40 bucks well spent? All right, Janine, are you ready for the motivational moment? Let's do it. And it is from an anonymous source. Sisterhood is where we take off our shoes, let out our hair, laugh as loud as we want, and cry as often as we need to. It's where we can just unapologetically be. Now, wouldn't this be amazing if we could reach this level with women in the workplace? Let's do the work, ladies. We can achieve. Until we meet again. Pray, work, slay. And show off your melanated excellence. Bye. Oh, That's Deep Black Women Conversations is produced by Nicole Lee Plenty and Janine Brunson Johnson. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Get the Oh That's Deep Black Women Conversation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or where you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us. You can follow Oh That's Deep Black Women Conversations on IG at Oh That's Deep BWC. Oh That's Deep Black Women Conversations is a Mean Old Lion Media production.